Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe. Today on the show, the coronavirus pandemic from all the angles, with the former head of the CDC, two former prime ministers, and a former treasury secretary. I'll ask Italy's former prime minister, Matteo Renzi, what America can learn from his country and how Europe is taking Trump's travel ban. I'll talk to Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, about why the CDC botched the testing. And Larry Summers will tell me how low he thinks the markets will go. I'll talk to Tony Blair about how today's world leaders should navigate this historic crisis. We are all in this together. All that and more. But first, here's my take. The outbreak of an epidemic is something like a natural disaster, a spontaneous accidental eruption that's no one's fault. But that doesn't mean we can do little about it and just wait for it to run its deadly course. The evidence is now clear. The spread of the virus can be greatly slowed if governments act early, aggressively, and intelligently. Unfortunately, that does not describe the response of the United States government to the coronavirus pandemic. We can track the speed of the outbreak since January, by which time the virus had spread from China to other countries. In South Korea, after an initial spike, the number of new cases has slowed. Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan, despite lots of travelers from China, have kept numbers low from the beginning. In the United States, however, we are seeing accelerating increases. What did the successful countries do that seems to have worked? They began testing early and often. They coupled these tests with careful quarantines of those infected and tracking of where they had been to better predict where the next outbreaks might occur. The public health systems had surge capacity because funding had been adequate and authorities largely communicated simple, clear and consistent messages to the public. One new study, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, argues that without enhanced detection and restrictions on movement, the number of cases in China could have been 67 times higher by the end of February. And had China just started acting just one week earlier, there could have been 66% fewer cases. Who would have thought, look, uh, how long ago is it? Six, seven, eight weeks ago? Who would have thought we'd even be having this subject? In fact, as the New York Times reported, the director for medical and biodefense preparedness of his own National Security Council gave a speech in Atlanta in 2018 saying, the threat of pandemic flu is our number one health security concern. We know that it cannot be stopped at the border. The day after she made this speech, the White House eliminated her unit. 
Trump did make one very good decision to ban most travelers from China from entering the United States. That bought the United States time. Alas, that time was wasted. Testing turned into a fiasco. If this were war, the generals in charge of that operation would have been relieved of their command. Just one comparison. As of Friday, South Korea has tested about 250,000 potential cases. It has a population of about 50 million. In the United States, this would be the equivalent of testing about 1.5 million. As of Friday, according to the CDC, the United States had conducted about 15,000 tests in public health labs, more in private labs, but we don't even know how many. Per capita, the United States has tested far fewer people than most other advanced countries. Trump's most recent dramatic move, the travel ban on most of Europe, is symbolic of the administration's actions. The thousands of Americans currently in Europe are apparently exempt, as are a small number of others. More importantly, the disease is already in the United States and spreading. The policy was so poorly thought through that amendments, corrections, and reversals were made to the president's speech within minutes of his having delivered it. This crisis seems to have been designed to bring out the worst of Trump. The president doesn't like or trust experts, often explaining that he knows more than they do. He has bluffed and fibbed his way through much of his life and thinks nothing of doing so again, except this time we are not charmed or amused by the bluster, but rather frightened. In most global crises, the United States takes the lead and provides comfort and assurances to the world. In this one, Trump has been mostly AWOL. When he does appear, it is to blame the disease on foreigners and announce policies that are designed to reinforce that view. The broad collapse in global markets is surely in part a reaction to the vast vacuum of leadership in the White House. Donald Trump views everything from the narcissistic prism of his ego. He dismisses opposing views and insists that even the senior-most members of his administration repeatedly praise him and his leadership at all times. Watching the heads of America's leading science agencies prefacing their statements with ritual praise for the dear leader has been deeply depressing. Come to think of it, the Trump administration has been copying the wrong Korea. Instead of the intelligence and expertise of South Korea, it is emulating the sycophancy, incompetence, and propaganda of North Korea. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Why did the American government botch the testing of Americans for COVID-19? Joining me now is Tom Frieden, the former director of the CDC and the former commissioner of the New York City Health Department. He is now the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. So everybody's trying to figure this out. Um, South Korea has tested, as we've all learned now, hundreds of thousands of people in a country of only 50 million. The U.S. still seems to be it's somewhere in the 10 to 15,000 range. Why? First thing to understand is that the CDC has done this before very effectively. In influenza, in other responses, rapidly provided tests for public health 
not just to the U.S., every state, but more than 100 countries around the world, quickly and high quality. Something went wrong this time. That should be looked at by an independent group so it doesn't get, go wrong in the future. The second thing to understand is that testing is not just done at public health labs. For something of this scale, you really need the commercial laboratories to be there and doing more faster. They're taking about three or four days for turnaround time and just coming online now. But also you, you, hospitals can do some testing as well. You saw the reports that there were, for example, in Seattle, uh, uh, hospital labs that wanted to do it, and they were essentially told, no, stop testing. And it appears as though it was because the federal government did not want the numbers to go up. I don't know what was done by whom or why, but laboratory-developed tests, such as those done in hospitals, are regulated by the FDA. And in late February, they loosened their criteria on uh, having that done differently. But it's also really important to understand the role of testing. If you don't have symptoms or you're mildly ill and not at risk for severe illness, there's really no reason to be tested once we know that coronavirus is spreading. The focus now has to be what's most important, reducing the number of infections, reducing the likelihood that someone who gets infected will die from it, and limiting the amount of societal damage from this pandemic. President Trump says that the reason things went badly was um, President Obama made some changes to the testing that complicated matters, um, that Obama's response to H1N1 was a, dis a disaster. Um, you were the head of the CDC then. What do you say? Facts matter. And the fact is this has been a bipartisan focus with continuous progress, going back to George W. Bush, who did a lot of excellent things on pandemic influenza preparedness. We in the Obama administration advanced those. We were able to get test kits out fast. Something went wrong here. It, we have to find out why so that we can prevent that in the future. But you, so you're saying you fundamentally dispute the idea that, it, that the H1N1 the kits didn't go out fast. I did read uh, that, that the kits went out, about a million kits went out within a month of the, of the disease being diagnosed. Was that, does that strike you as roughly right? For years after the 2009 influenza pandemic, as I, as CDC director, traveled around the world, literally dozens of countries thanked me and thanked the U.S. because of the CDC lab test kits that went out first to the U.S. and then everywhere in the world and performed very well. At CDC, in my time there, we created a new uh, unit of laboratory science and safety. We upgraded our laboratories. We got money from Congress to improve molecular detection. And one thing I really want to make clear, the same 20,000 public health professionals who dedicate their lives to protecting Americans and promoting health around the world that worked at CDC when I was there are still there. And in fact, the leadership that was under me is still there as well. CDC is still the greatest public health institution in the world. It's taken a hit here. But if you want good evidence, good advice on what to do about coronavirus, the best place in the world to get it is the CDC website. Do you think the travel ban makes sense? A lot of people are saying it, it kind of, it hits at the wrong problem because the disease is already here. There are a couple of things to be clear about. Reducing travel from China, without a doubt, bought us time. It reduced the number of cases, but it was never going to prevent this from coming to our shores. That's why any travel restrictions or bans are only useful if we use that time to best advantage to prepare better to make sure that all of us do what we can do, washing hands, covering coughs, not going out if we're sick, that vulnerable people get ready to shelter if need be and reduce their contact with others, that healthcare facilities 
really get ready to surge safely so they reduce the risk of infections, uh, have the ability to treat large numbers of people quickly if that's needed, and have the ability to surge up the number of people who can be safely cared for in intensive care units. All right, stay with me. Um, when we come back, I'm going to ask Tom Frieden to explain something. He says that the worst case scenario has as many as a million Americans dying. I will ask him to explain that number when we come back. And we are back with the former CDC director, Tom Frieden. Now, you said in a, in a, uh, on a website, um, Think Global Health, that it is possible that a million Americans could die of this disease. Um, and I want to uh, get you to explain that, but I want to make sure that I get this right, because I think Americans find it very hard to understand exponential growth, which is what is happening here. Uh, and this is why things are going up. So if you just look at the cases, um, the number of cases seems to be doubling in America about every three days, something like that. Um, there were 1,500 roughly. Three days becomes 3,000. Six days becomes 6,000. Nine days from that, it becomes 12,000. 12 days, 24,000. 15 days, 48,000. 18 days, 96,000. 21 days, 192,000. 24 days, 384,000, 27 days, 768,000, and in 30 days, one month, it becomes one and a half million. So that's exponential growth. And of course, then it's going to double from one and a half million to three million. So that's the numbers infected. Is that what you're worried about? Fundamentally, to see how bad this is going to be, we look at two numbers. First, how many people are severely affected? And second, what proportion of the population does it affect? With influenza, we have a vaccine. We have immunity that protects some of us from it. With this new virus, we don't know fully how it's spreading, how readily it spreads, for how long it will spread, in what season it will spread. It's new. And anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen doesn't know enough about this virus. So that's why you have this two-by-two two matrix where you say, assume it, it, it has a 1% fatality rate. Assume it had, and. And one of those plausible scenarios, you have a million Americans dying. One of the striking things about the analysis that we did for Think Global Health is that it could be small with hundreds of deaths, which would be too many, but still hundreds, or it could be large with more than a million deaths. We don't say that's going to happen. We say these are the possibilities. What we can do about it is substantial. And there's been a lot of understanding recently about flattening the curve. What we can do to prevent a huge peak in cases which might outstrip healthcare capacity. That's what we saw in Wuhan. That's what we're seeing in parts of Italy now. And that's what we want to avoid here. Explaining what you mean by flattening the curve is, let's say a million people do get infected. It makes a big difference if it doesn't happen over 30 days, but rather over 90 days even because then you have a hospital system that can take care of people. Exactly. You'd like to reduce the number of people who get infected and severely ill by any means you can, but even if the same number get ill, but it stretches out over more months, you're not going to overwhelm your healthcare facilities as much. And that's important because overwhelmed healthcare facilities result in patients and healthcare workers getting infected and result in not being able to give the best possible care to people who are severely ill. Will it go away in April in the, when the weather gets hot? There's no way to know what this will do in a different climate. It has never circulated in the world before. It's new. There are some other strains of coronavirus that have both a winter peak and a summer peak. We can hope it goes away, 
Bottom line, we need to work for the best and plan for the worst. Is it possible that the fatality rates that we have are, are too high because in fact there are many more people who are infected we don't know about? In other words, the denominator is much larger than we think. So actually, so we're looking at and we're saying, you know, three out of a hundred are dying, but actually it's three out of a thousand because there is 900 people infected whom we don't know about. As the former CDC director, there are two things that I am just so frustrated about. First, I would like to be hearing from the top world experts at CDC every single day. What are they doing? What's their guidance? Guidance from the top public health professionals to the American people. Second, there are crucially important questions that we don't know the answers to. Do children spread this? If they don't, there's much less reason to close schools. Does this spread from asymptomatic people? Sometimes yes, but how important is that? Does it spread from contaminated surfaces? If so, then cleaning makes a lot of sense. If not, it's kind of a wasted effort. And what proportion of people die from this? And for that, we have to really get a better sense of who gets infected, how many people get infected, and which are the people most likely to have severe illness or death. That way, we can prioritize them for services. The more we know, the better we can protect people. How does this go away? Because in China, they are now resuming economic activity. They're resuming the gatherings. I look at it, and I think it's amazing what, they, what they've been able to do, but won't it just start up again if you start letting people go back to, you know, to, to all the commingling that caused it in the first place? China has done something extraordinary. They basically had hundreds of millions of people stay home for a month, and they scaled up their ability to deal with uh, severe infection during that time. Uh, they have been able to tamp this down. It's continuing to spread, but at a very low rate in Wuhan. But we don't know if it will come roaring back as their economy restarts. We don't know if they'll have imported cases from elsewhere. They have such a tight program now that they've been able to identify imported cases into China from other places and to prevent those from spreading. But every country in the world is going to have to deal with this. And that means that all of us need to change our behavior. It means we need to protect the most vulnerable. We need to protect our healthcare frontline workers and ready to scale up. And we need to cut back on mass gatherings that can spread this to lots of people from lots of places. The president keeps saying, and he said it many, many times, this is going to go away. Are you as sanguine, or I shouldn't say sanguine, are you as confident, you know, this will go away. We will get through this as a country, and we will get through it best if we work together. At some point, infectious diseases circulate or stop circulating. We don't know what will happen with this virus. It could continue to circulate for years. We could develop a vaccine in a year or two, or that may be very difficult. HIV, malaria, TB, we've been trying to develop a vaccine for decades without success. We hope it'll be successful, but we can't count on it. I'm a little more optimistic about treatment. Within a few months, we could have treatments that reduce the risk of death and reduce the need for intensive care. That would be a major benefit, but we don't have it yet. So what we have now is all of us working together to protect all of us. Pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you. Next on GPS, from human health to the health of the world's markets, the former Treasury Secretary, former President of Harvard, Larry Summers, joins me in a moment. Disney parks closed, sports seasons suspended, Broadway going dark, major conferences postponed, and thousands upon thousands of flights canceled. This is the new normal, and the markets melted down this week. Let's dig into what happened and what might come next with the former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers. Larry, we know what the markets have done. 
What is happening in your view to the economy, to the actual economy, and how big is this? Very little that's good. I think there's a 85 or 90 percent chance, Fareed, that we're going to have a recession. I'm not at all confident that the recession will be a mild one. It wouldn't surprise me if it was as bad as the recession that we had in 2008 and 2009. Why do I say that? Estimates suggest that tens of millions of people are likely to have this uh, illness over the next couple months, the next couple, six months. They're likely to have significant periods of being out of work. And for each one who has to stay out of work, somebody else is knocked out of work because they can't get a spare part, because there's no point in having vendors if they're not going to be baseball games, uh, because uh, they're not going to be airplanes if only 11 people uh, want to fly and so forth. So you've got a real breakdown of the whole mechanism of exchange on which an economy depends. That in turn causes financial difficulties. That means less purchasing still. That means more financial uh, difficulties. So I think the likelihood is of a pretty serious uh, dislocation and problem. And it's made worse by the fact that the Fed's basically out of ammunition. Um, with interest rates so close to zero, they can reduce interest rates more, but I don't think it'll make very much difference. They can buy longer term bonds, but when interest rates on 10-year bonds are already below 1%, I don't think that's going to make uh, very much uh, difference either. So I don't think this is a completely solvable problem, and I think the economy will slow substantially. That's part of what is being discounted into markets. And we hope that the squabbling will stop in Washington. I don't expect it, but I hope it. Uh, am I right in thinking the only thing that could really turn things around is on the medical side? In other words, if, you ha if the Fed lowers interest rates, if it's cheaper to borrow, people aren't going to start flying if they think they're going to get the coronavirus and sports games aren't going to be rescheduled. And even if you were to give people some more purchasing power, they're still not going to go to a basketball game, first of all, if the season is canceled, but they're not going to restart it if the fear, unless there is a medical shift, I don't quite see how the economic stuff really helps. Well, I would differ slightly with you there. You're not going to resolve this problem as long as tens of millions of people are waking up every morning uh, worrying about whether they or one of their family members or somebody there would otherwise run into that day is going to be getting a very serious uh, illness. If you don't fix that, you're not going to fix the economy. On the other hand, whether you make sure that the flow of purchasing power is maintained, that will have an effect on how much economic activity takes place, that will have an effect on how much the vicious cycle develops and unravels and make things worse and worse. So this is a case where we need to do both things. First priority is getting the medical stuff under control and uh, if we do even a half as badly 
with hospital rooms and ventilators and intensive care units, as we've done so far with uh, the tests uh, for corona, we're going to have very, very critical uh, problems. But that doesn't mean you can ignore the purely economic aspects. Let me ask you about something that strikes me about uh, what happened in 08, and you were in the White House with President Obama um, once, once his term began. Um, there was a lot of global coordination. Um, the, the Obama administration coordinated very closely with other governments. The Fed coordinated, uh, coordinated very closely with other central banks. It feels like this crisis, there is much less global coordination. Is that a problem? Yes. Uh, you'll, you remember, Fareed, about 10 days ago, the Fed cut interest rates, and it was completely and utterly ineffective. Part of the reason for that was that the Treasury had announced 24 hours before with drum rolls and cymbals that there was going to be a G7 phone call. The G7 had their G7 phone call. There was nothing that came out of that phone call, despite the drum rolls in advance. And then, several hours later, the Fed went entirely on its own. And so anybody looking at it could not have been in doubt that there'd been some attempt at publicity around cooperation, no actual cooperation, and then American unilateralism. You had the feeling on something that was quintessentially international. It was about people crossing borders carrying germs. I think it's a very uh, serious problem. And I think one other thing, which is in 2009 at the London summit and at those intervals, the a crucial role after the United States was played by the Chinese, who really committed themselves to stimulate uh, their economy. It was probably the last big aspect of U.S.-Chinese cooperation. And after all the trade war hijinks, you certainly don't have any sense of ongoing cooperation between the United States and the Chinese. Sobering thoughts. Thank you, Larry Summers. Thank you. Next on GPS, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair on the world's response to the coronavirus. How are leaders handling it and how should they when we come back? So how are the world's leaders handling the crisis and how should they be? I wanted to hear from the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Tony Blair, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. So when you were prime minister, you dealt with many health crises, um, foot and mouth disease, SARS. What is, what was, you know, there's a moment when you first are told about this by scientists, and I guess you have to make a decision. Are you, are you going to worry about panicking people, or are you going to decide this is a national emergency and we've got to do everything about it? How do you make that call? I mean, this is fantastically difficult. And, you know, what I was dealing with was, was minor compared with, with this, for sure. Um, the one thing I did learn when I dealt particularly, I spent six months of my premiership dealing with the worst outbreak of foot and mouth disease that uh, the world had ever known and that devastated our agriculture sector. Obviously not nearly so serious because it didn't affect um, humans. But the one thing I learned 
is you've got to bring the best brains in, the best scientists, and listen to them. Because we were told to do some pretty drastic things that, frankly, a lot of us, when we first heard them, thought, oh, my God, you can't be serious. We've really got to do that. Um, and actually, the scientific advice we got turned out to be absolutely right. Their prediction of how you would take this thing out turned out to be absolutely correct. So I'm not... I mean, I, I would not dream of second-guessing anyone who's in government right now. They'll be you know, privy to lots of information that I'm not. But um, it's, it's fantastically difficult. But when you look at the countries that have done well, they are the ones of South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore. They're the ones that seem to have done exactly what you say, listened to the scientists early on, taken the dra dramatic, sometimes drastic measures early on to stop the problem. You know, in other words, go big, go early, and hope that it abates. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's a very difficult judgment because you're making it day by day. And also, of course, people are really worried about the effect on the economy. I mean, people will be put out of work. Uh, this could be actually worse in some of its aspects than the financial crash. So it's, you know, it's got a, a major implication. And if you're a leader, it's not... Well, one thing you can be sure of, in hindsight, people will come along and say whatever judgment was made was probably not correct. But the one reflection I have is that maybe we just have to do the best we can as, as, as we bring this outbreak under control. But then I think after that, we've got to look at the global response and how you coordinate it better to things like this, because you've got to think this isn't the last time we'll have a, an epidemic of this sort. Other big thing that's happening in America is, of course, the yeah. Democratic primary. Um, and I wanted to get your sense, because we've been having this fascinating discussion about what is the best way to take on um, right-wing populism. Let's call, let's not just call it Donald Trump, but this larger phenomenon. Um, and there's Bernie Sanders who says the way to do it is to be more progressive, more ardent, you know. Uh, and there's uh, Biden, who in a sense seems to be promising a kind of restoration. Um, is it, where, where do you think the left should go? So when I hear the, the rhetoric around Bernie Sanders, and who, by the way, is obviously a very capable uh, guy, but it's eerily familiar to anyone who's just watched the debacle unfold of the British Labour Party and our election defeat in the UK, which is essentially the worst in our 120-year history. And I just don't think there's an appetite for socialist revolution. There wasn't in Britain. I'd be surprised if there was in the US. But, and so I think people, are, 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 if they go down that path, it's an enormous gamble, put it like this, because you're essentially saying, we're going to put aside the middle ground. We're not really going to try and reach um, that. Instead, we're just going to up the turnout. And that's exactly what the strategy of the Corbyn Labour Party in the UK, and it failed um, drastically. So, And over here, the Sanders turnout is not materialising. That is to say, if you look at the numbers, he's not bringing out the, the new voters. Yeah, that's why I'm a sceptic about it. Now, on the other hand, I think what is important is to recognise that, you know, progressive politics has got two big challenges. First of all, my view of the populism is you've got to be very careful when you're from the liberal or progressive side of politics, because you, if you're not careful, you tend to say, look, these people who are voting for Donald Trump or voting for Brexit, they're just irrational people. I don't understand why they're doing it. Um, and you've just got to hope this is a moment that passes. No, they're doing it for reasons. And 
Whereas populism can exploit grievances, they don't invent them. The grievances are real. So if you take the issue of immigration, I can't think you can fight an election anywhere in the Western world today and win it unless you have a policy on immigration that may be pro-immigration, but it's got to be strong in terms of rules and order, um, because otherwise you just you leave yourself absolutely vulnerable. And I am a passionate believer that if the left goes down the path of trying to fight a culture war with the right, it will lose comprehensively, and it really should not do that. But I think the other thing that is really important for progressive politics is you've got to have a forward agenda as well, because the other thing about populism, this is why I say this efficacy thing is very important. One of the reasons people are attracted to strong leaders, some people call them authoritarian leaders, but let's just call them leaders that are that are prepared to sort of take on all comers, that they're not sitting in front of the wall contemplating it, they wanted to punch a hole in it, right? The reason why people are attracted is because they want change, right? So they want movement, they want the thing done. So if you look at part of the attraction, I think, of President Trump here, is this feeling that things move, right? He's gonna get stuff done. You must know Joe Biden. Do you think he can get this done? Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I think he's a highly capable and, and very decent man, by the way. I mean, I, I, I've known him for some years and, you know, he's a, he, he's a good man. But I, I think this will be the challenge. Once you've sorted out your own internal challenges, let's say, and it's always difficult when you're fighting an internal political battle because you're directing your, your attention, obviously, to a degree to the people who are going to make the selection. But once that happens... I think, you know, assembling a, a strong group of people who can um, give a real sense of a forward agenda is, is, is important. Tony Blair, always a pleasure. Thank you. Next on GPS, the former Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi. He is on lockdown like the rest of his nation, so we go to his house. When we come back, he'll tell us what lessons we can learn from what Italy did wrong and right. The Western nation most devastated by COVID-19 has been Italy. Seeing the rapidly rising incidence rate and death toll, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte put the entire nation on lockdown earlier this week. What lessons can we learn from the Italians? Let me bring in one of Mr. Conte's predecessors, the former Italian Prime Minister, Matteo Renzi. Matteo, welcome. First, give us a sense of what is life like with this kind of a total lockdown? What does it look like? It's very strange. It's the first time, fortunately, in the history of Italy after World War II. And of course, it's an unbelievable experience because we, as Italians, we are a people very... Uh, expensive, very ready to, to, to shake an hand, to touch the other people, to uh, live in a community. So it's not easy for Italian people. But I think it's necessary because, unfortunately, our country was the worst in the Western community in terms of um, uh, people infected. So it's as bad news, but it's a necessity. My only opinion is, please, don't make the same, uh, the same mistakes of Italian guys. And it's very important, don't waste time to fight against um, uh, coronavirus, because uh, we blocked the direct plane from China to Italy, but we don't block 
the contagion, the spread. Now it's time for all the countries to bring the current right decision as soon as possible. What do you think of President Trump's travel ban, uh, stopping essentially all Europeans from coming to the United States for at least 30 days? I have a lot of respect for President of the United States, for President Donald Trump. I think this is not the answer. All, with all my respect, uh, block the plane uh, with uh, Europe is exactly the same mistake Italian government made uh, two months ago when we blocked the direct plane with China. President Trump is the president of the United States. I have a lot of respect for him, but please, uh, we have to learn from the past. Uh, president Obama during uh, Ebola in 2014 was very, was the first to be careful about the risk of pandemic event. Please, we have to, don't waste our time now, because this is a time to act, act now. Um, does it seem to you that global cooperation has kind of uh, fallen apart? This is the first real global pandemic. Uh, the United States, certainly traditionally the leader, does not, is not playing that role. Uh, and yet it's difficult to imagine how it will be solved without a global coordination, since, it, as you say, it's a global disease. I believe, I believe we need a global co coordination because uh, uh, in the globalized world, uh, pandemic event uh, is the, uh, the demonstration of how little is our planet. Uh, of course, it's not easy. If we check on YouTube a very good speech from Bill Gates uh, four years ago about uh, exactly that point, the world is not ready for the next pandemic event. We can understand how big is the problem. But if every country decides alone, we haven't the possibility to solve the problem as soon as possible. So. China was the first country, was the first problem, and uh, President Xi Jinping uh, worked to block uh, with the Chinese way. China is not a democracy. There is not a problem of respect of the constitution as in the Western community. Then South Korea. South Korea used the technology ICT, big data, to block that. Then Italy, but Italy is only the first of all Europe, and then the United States. We have to work together. We cannot say, USA are better than other all at the same time. This is a problem of China, it's not a problem of Europe. No, no, it's a problem of everyone. I, I, I explained that message to my uh, old uh, colleagues in the European Union. Please, if we continue to think that is only a problem of Italy, you will be the next. And that is a big problem for everyone. Matteo Renzi, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.